Hello everyone. Before we get started, I wanted to mention that on June 27th at 5 p.m., Ahmed, Ellie, and I will be at Think Coffee in New York City, and we would love for you all to stop by, whoever can. It's at 73 8th Avenue in New York City, so come hang out. Welcome to the Queer Arabs podcast. This is Alia. And Deli. And we are the Queer Arabs. I'm Saudi American and a lesbian. I'm bi-trans Lebanese and we're recording here today in Houston and... And in D.C. Hi, I'm Neda. So glad to talk to you and to see your beautiful face. We are actually looking at each other, which is kind of rare with our guests because sometimes it interferes with the sound. But it's not right now. So. Bandwidth issues for you technical people. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, Neda, thank you so much for being here. Can you give everyone a little bit about your background? Like, I know you're Syrian-American. You're also Lebanese, right? Yeah, so I'm half Syrian. and I always say I'm half Syrian and half Lebanese. But it's funny because I think a lot of people from the Levant kind of, and just from a lot of post-colonized states can relate. We don't really know. My dad is from Jabal al-Sheikh, which is the mountain border um, between Lebanon, Syria, and Palestine. And then my grandparents are from Beirut and moved to Damascus. But at that time, it was all one country. So ethnically, I would technically be Lebanese, but I've grown up in Syria and just kind of identify more with my background and my upbringing in Syria. And that's super interesting, too, because like my folks are similarly mixed. It's like we've got, we're part Armenian, part Syrian, mm-hmm. grandparents come out from all over and they're part yeah. something. It's we're mutts. It's awesome. Yeah. It is. I think people don't like realize how diverse the Middle East is. Yeah, or just how diverse. Forget. Yeah, like those countries really are. And it's so interesting when people ask my background because I always say like, oh, I'm Syrian. And then I have to think about it like, oh, well, actually, like my family originates in Lebanon. So I'm also Lebanese. (laughs) That's always a dreaded question. And it's like, shit, I have to. So I have to look at the person and assess, Okay, they're white. They're probably going to ask, where am I really from? So let's just get to that. (laughs) That's always the way it goes. Where are you from? And then they look at you very closely. It's like, I mean, if I'm going to annoy them, I'm going to be like, Texan. They're like, no, what country? The great nation of Texas. That's a valid response. Yeah, I mean, if Texans are going to say that, might as well use it. The reason that we got to know Neda, I'm so glad, is that Leila Khoury, who we've had on as a guest, is Neda's cousin. And... We got in touch with Neda because of her. So you might remember uh, Layla from our last, like a past episode, we talked about um, artifacts and the way that they are misused, appropriated and stuff like that. And Layla has been putting a lot of time and effort into just getting that those stories out there and making people aware of what's going on with these precious artifacts that but enough people on have that. stolen. Go Anyways, watch, go listen to that episode. Go listen to that episode. 
But anyway, that's how we got connected with Netta. And so, Netta, can you talk about your work? I know you work with, you're currently with the Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee in D.C. Can you talk about what it is, first off, and then um, what you do? So we actually, they changed the name years ago, and it's American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee. And that was done very explicitly to emphasize the Americanness of the group. Okay. Um, now we've shortened it. It's just ADC, um, but we're a civil rights organization. We provide direct services and we do policy work. Right now, I'm doing a fellowship. I'm there for a year. I'm a legal. I'm an attorney. I'm doing a legal fellow, but we go between doing actual like cases, working on immigration issues, asylum issues. Um, we also work on education, on voting rights, on counter countering violent extremism programs, surveillance programs. Um, we really work across the board on a lot of different issues. And then we also do the policy side to it. Um, so I, I do the legal side, but because I'm a fellow, I sometimes get to indulge and go to the different policy meetings which is also very it's fun to see like the cases we're working on and then go to the hill and see like the legislation that's being enacted that's directly impacting those cases even though they're separate systems they really work hand in hand and you kind of see just this really interesting overlap and this kind of like tension between like what is the legal system and what is the policy machine Mm -hmm. and it's so interesting at times. I think I touched on this uh, before with you about the, the U.S. Census case. ADC was one of the um, plaintiffs on that case at the Supreme Court. And so to get to watch the Supreme Court trial and to see like the legal aspect of it was so amazing. But then I also got to go to the Wilbur Ross hearing on the Hill and watch Ocasio-Cortez and Rashida Tlaib yeah. like, dig in on these same issues and to see that like parallel dynamic of like the policy side and the legal side has been really really interesting oh wow so for our listeners who are not quite up on current events or have lost track of all the supreme court cases lately (laughs) oh yeah can you elaborate on what you're talking about like with the census case oh yeah so the u.s census um they're adding the citizenship question to it Basically, the Constitution says that all persons in the U.S. should be counted. And when you count each person, that's how political um, funds are appropriated. And that's how many representatives you get. So communities who have large um, non-citizen based communities, they're they're generally going to be if they ask a citizenship question and they start using citizenship as a point of counting persons, it's going to take funding and and resources away from those communities and representation away from those communities and it's kind of a political legal way of just subjugating already underrepresented groups yeah yeah so it's really i mean important it touches every aspect of what we do how much money we get in our education systems how much money we get in our voting system how much money we get just in every public system that we rely on to live right it comes back to the census yeah and it doesn't just affect undocumented people uh it also includes people who do have status but are not citizens yeah so per- permanent residents permanent permanent residents um and just all the other categories you know visa holders and all that good stuff it's just it basically would defund the communities that serve those people yeah oh yeah. wow it's crazy i didn't realize that about permanent residents and it's also the other fear is like even if you are a u.s citizen but you come from a country that is not as friendly with like the legal systems, like you're going to be fearful of answering that type of information. 
and people are already hesitant yeah. to fill out forms that they get from the government. Oh, so well, yeah, I'm sure. People who are now also unfamiliar with our census base and yeah. may, like maybe they are citizens, but they're just not from this country. And they're like, why is the government asking me my status? Oh, fair. Yeah. Because they're like, are they going to look more closely at me? Or if I yeah. say the wrong thing, are they going to come after me for some contrived legal reason? Mm -hmm. So it's like, better not yeah. answer. Just don't touch yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, I and see. I found out, like, if you don't answer the census, they actually will send a person, like an actual person, to your home to fill out the form with you. And that's just Whoa. standard by the government. Oh, okay. okay. They, like, have to do that because they're supposed to count everybody. I see. Now, the question is, do they also send an ICE agent now? So that's it's a, little a more possibility, French, you know, but... and that's really mm -hmm. scary. Mm -hmm. That's something that they, that's kind of the fear, right? Like, are they going to send an ICE agent now? Or are they going to, you know, just send somebody, send somebody who's going to be openly hostile, just basically like, oh, they're not that neighborhood. I know it's not like, I know it's a little paranoid, but it's also like, what isn't irrational these days, you know? Exactly. Fair. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. And how long have you been with the ADC again? So I started at ADC in January. I've awesome. been there now about five months, coming on six months. Yeah. And no, I, I know the story of this, but for our listeners, can you talk about like the story of how you got the position and when you found out? Yeah. The... So at that time, I had actually, I was at the UN in New York. Um, I was at the Security Council and I had finished my contract with them and I didn't really know what was next. And I was going to just travel back to Ohio and stay with my parents and see what was going to happen from there. And on my way back mm -hmm. to Ohio from New York, I said, oh, I'll stop in Chicago to see my friends because I went to law school in Chicago. So I took a trip out to Chicago. And as I had landed in Chicago, I got a call from the president of the board here who had asked me like, oh, well, we remembered you from when you came to this conference about a year ago and we have this mm -hmm. position opening and we would love if you would apply and like interview. And I was like, oh that's awesome. Like I just finished my position. I don't really know what I'm going to do next. So I immediately like submitted all my materials and I got a call from them again that weekend. And I had my interview. I was in Chicago. Actually, I did my interview in Chicago still. And by the time I got back to Ohio, I had um, had like three rounds of interviews and I finally got my offer there. And so it was really cool. And they were like, well, we need you to start immediately. And and like, holy shit. Yeah, <laughs> I moved down here in like a week. Like I got the offer and like a week or two later was down in D.C. Oh my and goodness. just kind of hit the ball running. I mean, it's like a they, good, a really good kind of stress, but it's still stress. Yeah, yeah. it was cool because ADC um, went through a restructuring of their legal system or of their legal team. Mm -hmm. Rather, um, one of their senior attorneys, she moved on to a different organization. And so they hired a new senior attorney. And she also was moved down here from New York. And she's amazing. And um, they also brought on like new legal like interns. Yeah. And me, so we really worked on like restructuring. We restructured everything. I mean, we do our intakes differently. We do our closeouts differently. And she and I yeah. just went through the whole kind of legal system. And revamped all the documents and everything. Wow. So I'm, yeah, it's been very like exciting, but also I've learned so much. I'm sure, yeah. 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 We've been doing that while balancing our actual docket. 
in our actual like cases excuse me in clients so it's been like Right. Yeah. And I don't know how much you can talk about demographics of clients you work with or like what specifically you do, but anything you're comfortable with sharing, we would love to hear about that. Sure. So I, I obviously like can't give names and stuff, but yeah, for sure. my, so my favorite client, we work with clients across the board, um, any, you know, race, religion, faith, whatever, um, any sexual orientation, any gender, mm-hmm. any level of education. We don't, we don't discriminate. Whoever comes to our door, if we can help you, we're there. And if we can't take your case personally, we always, 100%, will always find somebody who can. Like, we will always send people off with a referral, at least. Because the reality is that we just don't have the capacity to take every case that comes to our door. But we still don't want to leave people feeling like they're hopeless. Yeah. Especially as Byzantine as the United States legal system can be. Yeah. One thing we really need is civil Gideon across the board, but and for those who don't speak legal, it's it basically means everyone gets a lawyer, like yeah. government paid. But it only applies to criminal cases and guess what? Immigration, not a criminal matter. That's actually like super interesting cuz I got to teach my one of my cases now or one of the cases ADC is on, I should say, is by a gentleman who's in detention and it took me almost two weeks to make contact with him. And at first we had gotten the client um, from a different organization who said like, can you take this case? We're just at capacity. And we said, sure. And we went to find the client. The client initially was located in Texas. When we called the uh, detention center, they, he was no longer there. They had no record of him or that, or where he may have gone. Um, so I checked the online ICE locator, which like wasn't updated to tell me where he was. And I just started calling places that had high volume of um, Iraqi detainees. I called, um, I found him, I located him in Michigan. The detention center he's at, I called and said, we have a client here, we're his counsel. Um, we want him to know that he has representation. Can we give you our number for him to call us? And they said, we don't send messages to detainees. Um, the only way of doing it is to go through this online system, schedule a video conference, and then we will ensure that they're at that conference. Okay. And I was like, okay. I go to their online system. It takes me, it took me an an entire workday like an eight-hour workday to download this program and then it had been a corrupted file like three times i called the company website they directed me to another website they directed me here and there i called tech support by the end of the workday i had found out that the program was down it had been down for a week and that they had no idea when it was coming back, and that there was no other way to make contact with persons in the detention center. My timer is going off because my grapes are finished. Yay! <laughs> Side note, Neda is an amazing cook. We are getting to witness it. And she made love on too. <laughs> yeah. So we learned all of these things, and then I called the detention center back, and I said, I can't schedule. Here's why. Your tech support told me it's down. Can I please give you my number? Will you please have them call us? They said, sure. Okay, fine. Like, we'll make an exception. I never heard back from. And so we were like, okay, um, what do we do now? So this client was very smart. He sent a letter to the ACLU saying, 
I'm scared and I need help and I don't know if I have counsel. And this was after we were trying to already make contact with him. Okay. And we were like, and they sent it. So we knew like, no, he needs someone. And he definitely doesn't know that he has someone. And finally, like I tried uh, re-downloading the program like a week later and I called their tech support and I finally got through to it. And then we went to schedule the to schedule the video conference, which these are also you have to pay for the time you use. It's not just like a free system. This is things that like people. This is another way of deterring people in the immigration system from like asserting their rights because like Ellie said like you're not entitled to an attorney if you're in immigration you have to assert that right to be entitled and do people get like people get like a phone card and they have to pay for they have to like refill the we cards? have to That's pay the contact oh. oh okay like if yeah. someone but if someone wants to make a call from oh. the detention center yeah I've heard people have to pay yeah, yeah that's um, usually why they'll say, like, do you accept these charges or it'll be put on, like, their pin. Okay, so in Texas, they have a, with some of the detention centers and prisons, they have um, where you can set up an account for basically calls and the commissary. So you have to pay into that. Prisoners can't, like, the prisoner's family has to do it or their attorney has to do it. It is fucking stupid. That's insane. It's so sad. And because of that, it's just like one more layer. Now with the software, this is, while it sounds like, oh, well, everyone uses software now. And there was a big push towards like digital documents submission and digital interfacing with everything. It's the fact that it doesn't work is it's an infuriating hurdle. And if you're not a tech oriented person, like you're a lawyer who's taking the case, you know, pro bono as a favor to a friend or a favor to a nonprofit, then, you know, it's just like one more frustrating step in a system that is actively changing before your eyes, like the rules are actively changing, the methods of access are actively changing, and then you have to deal with the software. Yeah, it's just like one more something extra that that because because of the software, it took us two weeks to get in touch with him versus they could have given him our number and we could have paid for that phone time. That is insane. And it would have been in the same day. Right. And yeah. it just was so... And then finally, we go to schedule this video conference. And it said, I'm sorry, the client is not available. We contacted the detention center because how can he not be available? He is on their schedule. Right. They gave us zero information. We reached out to our like contacts in the area. And they said, oh, this place is very notorious for putting persons in punishment when they have calls like this coming up or like finding reasons to put them in like that they can't attend. And it's just like a systematic way of, again, like stopping people from asserting the rights that they have. Because a lot of the people we get, I mean, a lot of people just generally don't know the legal system. Why would you ever need to? Mm-hmm. Unless you work in it or you have involvement with it in some capacity, there's no reason for you to know the law. And, I mean, other than to be a good citizen, but... Or a good attorney. And even yeah. then, the laws of the immigration system are not the same as anything else. You can't take, say, right. a criminal background and carry it straight over. Because right. the, rules, right. the rules are all different. Like, even the way you format <laughs> your yeah. court submissions is different. And de- mm-hmm. depending on the county clerk you get, or not the county, the judge, the court clerk you get... Right. They may be quite militant about those margins and staple positioning. Yeah, dude, that's so real. Yes, 100%. Some of it, you kind of just step back and you want to 
shake people and be like, this is not just a job. This is someone's life. So set your ego aside and your whatever little biases you carry. Like, Mm -hmm. look at this person who's stuck in this situation and ask yourself, like, is this right or is this okay? And for context, (laughs) immigration law, especially for like asylum seekers is not the most profitable of things. In fact, it is zero profit, zero profit. <laughs> and, and there are a lot of people are doing this, you know, pro bono. So again, one more hurdle. And these cases take forever to resolve. Like right. the current, like when I exited doing this, the, like my client was rescheduled five years in the future. It is like, oh yeah, that does laughing. not sound surprising. <laughs> and this is before like... they reshuffled the, uh, the order. Yeah. I mean, I'm just laughing because yeah. all of the immigration kind of policies you hear coming out of this country have, especially right now, have just been so horrific. But some of them are things, like you said, like this was before. These are things that have just been going on and nobody really thinks to question it. And I don't know if it's because people are like, well, they're not American. But then you're like, no, but they're still people and by not having entitlement to the rights they're entitled to, it still threatens us as Americans. Like it affects everything we do. And it leads to completely absurd outcomes. Like when a two year old is expected to be legally competent in court to defend themselves. Yeah. Or if there's no interpreter and they don't speak English or if they are mentally disabled Yeah. or pick any fucking reason. Right. I had to give a client a know your rights discussion. So his uh, here's another case we're dealing with. It's with a group of persons who were resettled into a really rural space in um, Pennsylvania. And you have a group of resettled refugee students who have now been criminalized for misbehavior in school instead of internally disciplined by the school. It's interesting because one of our students, he had posted a video that was seemingly violent on Instagram. And one of the people at school reported it to the school and said, like, this was very violent. And the school wanted to expel him and press criminal charges. They decided that, okay, he's going to use the online homeschooling system for the year and Mm -hmm. we won't press charges. And then the police went forward and still pressed intent to commit terrorism or intent to commit terrorist threats was the charge they put on fucking leap from oh let's let him do some homeschooling that was the charge placed on a newly resettled refugee who does not speak english and who is mentally and physically um disabled (laughs) and who also has a learning disability Uh... and who also is new at the school and who was being bullied for his um for being all of these things oh and if you're wondering why schools are pressing charges uh in the 90s there was this big zero tolerance push where instead of letting schools discipline students they started pressing criminal charges and sending them to the juvenile and adult court systems as they see fit obviously there has been a if you want to go check the research on this obviously it's been a little bit racially biased yeah, right. how do you do this? Like, there's no how. There's no bright line of like what. Okay, this is too much or this is too little. So it's like right. so arbitrary. 
Yeah, combine that with the get tough on crime rhetoric that we've been basically pushing for the past, what, 40 years at this point? It's insane. I mean, with my mm-hmm. students especially, it's scary because these are kids. They're children. And they're posting their lived realities. And instead of saying these children need are traumatized and probably need counseling and help, and he needs to be told why violence is not normal. Instead, yeah. we're going to put him in a system that criminalizes him and punishes him and he's going to be in and out of that system for the rest of his life if he is found guilty like kids who go to jail end up just going back to jail it's Mm -hmm. not it's it's really like that school to prison pipeline that really exists and it's it's terrifying and for my students especially it was scary because his parents are you know they're all refugees they don't know the system they're new to this country they're new to this um culture they're new to the language they're resettled in a rural space that's not used to people of color, that's not used to immigrants. Yeah. And all of their teachers, you know, are it's not a diverse area. They're not familiar with the country dynamic or with the situation. And it's also putting it I feel like it's it's a double-edged sword because it doesn't help either party. Like it's not good for that community and it's not good for that kid because neither of them are being taught like the cultural importance or or on any side there's no like trainings being done we had to actually adc went and gave a cultural training to the community because of this case Mm -hmm. and we had to contact like the schools and the police departments and all of the different persons and we had really an amazing woman she works up there and she runs this incredible organization and she actually is the one who put it all together and she was just incredible Oh, i'm glad she was there yeah and Mm -hmm. so I don't know how much information I'm allowed to get. She was like a powerhouse and she was really the one who was able to, to organize um, in the local area so yeah. that we could come from DC and just give the trainings and just be there for that. And so my senior staff attorney, when she went and then she came back and she was like, the situation up there is just something else. Yeah, yeah. Like It's just, you see like why, of course they're fearful of these people. And of course, like these students are also fearful, like both sides are really scared. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's all goes back to like this vilification of immigrants, Mm -hmm. the treatment of immigrants, how we've started to like, or how we had been viewing refugees that were coming from Syria, especially the idea of like Arabs as a vilified people, as like terrorists, like why is it that he was charged with intent to commit terrorist threats? instead of just threatening or harassment or something yeah. that was um that we would charge you know any other like any other though. demographic it wouldn't he be labeled as terrorist very, probably like very specifically with and and what's yeah. abhorrent about that is if he were to be found guilty then his whole family becomes associated with a terrorist and then the whole family gets deported mm-hmm. and it's not just the effect on that child it's the effect on that whole family and that whole community yeah. You know, on top of everything else that's attached to this sort of case. Yeah. I'm super glad he didn't have a they didn't have a shitty attorney there who just sort of like just plea out, just plea out. So, we're we're so lucky this case was brought to us by um this woman, she's not an attorney. She she's like a resettlement agent and she's amazing and she brought it to our attention as just um I'm fearful that something might happen. And when she brought it to our attention, it was before they had brought the actual charges. And so that's at that point, I was just talking to the parents, 
giving them, you know, know your rights. If your child is arrested in the U.S., you're allowed to go with him. Um, yeah. You're allowed to ask, like, you have to ask for an interpreter. And mm. you have to, like, make sure you assert these certain rights that they have. And even giving that to them, it, for them, was also shocking because the rule of law in the Middle East doesn't function the same way. And if you have legal involvement abroad, like, that's very scary. It's very serious. Yeah. And here in America, it's a little more structured, but it makes people more, still so fearful of that system. And and as, for context, um, if you are, say, arrested in Egypt for something, uh, you, especially anything queer related, you know, tangential, but uh, yeah. torture is not uncommon. No, absolutely not. I mean, if, if anything, they wouldn't even call it torture. You'd never use that word. It would be interrogation. <laughs> it would be interrogation. Yeah. <laughs> But it wouldn't be like the sort of, oh, it's an enhanced interrogation. No, just everyday interrogation. Yeah. So it's, for them, like, having legal involvement is also, like, and especially being refugees. I mean, so asylum seekers, so, so listeners know, asylum seekers and refugees are different than one another in that refugees gain status outside of the U.S. And so they register through UNHCR. They go through their two-year vetting program, two, three-year and they get placed in different places, but they already have refugee status when they enter the United States. And after the UNHCR places them here, the U.S. does its own additional vetting on top. So there's actually like a double system for vetting refugees. And then the asylum seekers are persons who come to the border and ask for status. And as asylum seekers have a right to ask for status. They have a right to a well-founded fear interview, they have a right to come to the border and say, I'm fearful to go back. And if it's based on, you know, the five categories that they allow it to be based on, just like race, religion, um, national origin, political opinion, or social group, then they have a right to be here. And it's interesting when people say like, oh, illegals or aliens, or we use these like, free I think the words we use in the immigration system are so problematic because they really create a system of othering and they really do create an us first them type language instead of um, including like these groups as just these are people. And if they have this fear, then they should be welcomed into our system. And because it's a civil system, we shouldn't put them in incarceration. If anything, maybe they pay like a fine. But that's even more important. Like, why would we? The, but the system it's at now is so problematic. And one of the things Trump wanted to do was actually charge fees to asylum seekers. He enacted that new executive order that said that they're going to start charging fees to asylum seekers on the border. And I was so shocked when I read that because just of all the other indignities that they have afforded to these people who have left everything, everything that they have behind to come to a country where they can only hope to have a better future we're going to afford them the further indignity of forcing them to literally have to sell the shirts off their backs. Well, people are already having to pay bonds in the court once they reach court. So it's like people yeah. are already in a way paying. Oh, yeah. and for those of you who don't know, uh, it's not the in criminal court, your bond is usually 10% of whatever the judge sets bail. You go to the bail bondsman, 10% done, you're out. Uh, immigration court, not the same. You pay like full or 90% if I remember right. Yeah, it's scary. And, if, and it's not a low amount. And yeah, like um, one of the cases I handled, it was basically 
I was able to argue down like I believe it was like a thirty thousand dollar bail to like a thousand dollars. Wow. Because the ICE um, attorney did not read the case. Wow. And yes. Who like has really thirty grand lying around? Much less right. someone who is in a completely new setting and not allowed to work. Right. And this is a person who came to the border, did not have a criminal record anywhere, and thirty grand. Yeah. And they probably already paid the coyote everything they had. Yeah. Yeah. That's the other thing. People don't realize like the um, incidental costs or like the consequential costs along the way that you pay just to like getting across. I mean, it's such a dangerous journey mm -hmm. and it's something that people do because they really feel so compelled and I mean to have that level of resilience and then be faced with this additional burden I mean it's just so it's so heart-wrenching I when I was at the UN it was interesting because I had a similar issue um, with the country of Denmark who had enacted a law called the jewelry law and basically it authorized Denmark to collect valuables of refuge of asylum seekers at the border to pay for the emergency cost of stay and so they were they had legalized confiscating valuables off of people's backs literally that's why they called it the jewelry law because like they could the necklace i'm wearing right now is a gold necklace from that my grandmother got made for me in syria and i'm wearing a gold ring from my grandfather that he got made for me in syria and these are things they could just take yeah and these are like the lasting things from my family that I would ever have and I had to write a letter to the Danish government from the counterterrorism committee in the context of this is a perpetuating violence because you're creating resentment from groups of people by further um, like uh, by further degrading them and dehumanizing them by taking valuables literally off their backs and the yeah. law was implement was uh, excuse me was used only once, and after it was used that one time, actually it it like created a huge public outroar. I mean, good, especially because those are those are laws that um, the Nazis used in World War Two to for um, people who were trying to leave and like resettle and, and things. They that was very reminiscent of um, World War Two Nazi laws. Wow. And, so the fact that Trump is enacting a law that I would say parallels that is something that we should all be concerned about. Like these are yeah. not just things that he's thinking up and that we should say, okay, that sounds good. No, these affect everyday people. And these are really reminiscent yeah. of a time in history that we need to recall and remember. And avoid like hell. And avoid like hell, like yeah. heavily avoid like hell. Apparently we have a enough smart people in this country who put their time in a think tank to say, hey, this would be a really good policy to implement for reasons. Yeah. Sometimes I look at these policies and I always wonder, like, what are those reasons? Um, <laughs> if it's being done by this administration, it's to literally dissuade and discourage anyone from ever coming here. But even that, I mean, that's really, really like counter intuitive when you look at the economic structure of our country and just how beneficial it is to have immigrants here for sure even persons undocumented they still pay taxes they still pay into our system they still benefit the majority of what we do the strategic the strategic play here is twofold yeah. um one by firm further criminalizing and dehumanizing these people the people who are here without documentation 
basically live in fear. They have, they feel like they have no legal recourse, they have no rights, and therefore anyone who say employs them under the table pretty much, you know, decides whether they stay or go and how much they actually pay them if they pay them. So it keeps them under, under an extremely oppressive regime. And the other part of it is it's red meat for the conservative base. They love that shit and it'll get Trump a second um, term. Yeah. Um, and this would dissuade people already in the country from applying for asylum that way, like not credible fear, reasonable fear, but like actual yeah. asylum. If there's a fee and they're like, yeah, and this fear will make people even less likely to put themselves in the system and try to go about it the correct way, quote unquote. Right, right. Um, so maybe that's part of it. Yeah, because it's either like subject yourself to all these indignities or humiliations or keep your head down and hope for the best and hope the people here who do have status or people around you don't try to take advantage of that by extorting you or basically not paying you wages or mm -hmm. a thousand other things. That's true. It's all so much. When when you look at our immigration system, it's so concerning. And it's, it's interesting, I think, for a lot of first-generation kids, a lot of kids like us, just because we see our parents and families go through it and we look at it through a very personalized lens and we have this like personal attachment to it um I know for me like at least my you know my I was with my grandparents when they got their naturalization I got to help my grandmother study for her American oh, for history test. exam which was very hard and I probably would not have passed that's a really studied. hard test yeah, yeah. <laughs> and people have to memorize a hundred a hundred items it's well, I know there's an is. age exemption for, or like, whatever. There's, but anyways, a hundred yeah. items and you're like, any of those 10 you could be quizzed on. Yeah, it's hard. And even to like, e even like uh, my cousin now lives with us from Syria and she was born in this country and then went back to Syria. And so she had oh, never okay. been back here until she was 17. Like her family went back. Whoa. And so she's, she came here on her own and none of her siblings or parents could come because of the immigration issue. Yeah. And even with like the humanitarian um, push, they still weren't able to come. But even dealing with that within my own family was like shocking because getting like how, like, could we get her parents here? Could we do this or that? Or, mm -hmm. or coming here? Like when she arrived in America, I, it was so funny. She was 17. Now she's 22. She's probably going to listen to this and laugh at me because <laughs> she's my little best friend, but she's my little sister. I always tell everybody. Uh -huh. And it's funny because I'm five foot and like I'm tan and have dark curly hair. And she's like five, eight and blonde and green eyes. Whoa. And she, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we don't. And I'm like, that's my little sister. And people are like, you don't look. <laughs> are you sure? I'm like, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i hate that i hate that are you sure question the are you sure question yeah oh my god i'm like yeah they're like oh you don't look alike i'm like really we have the same you know parents like are you <laughs> oh my god <laughs> but no it that's like, funny even going through yeah. like how she because the school district that my parents are in and that I grew up in was a very you know public inner city school system and she went to like French private schools her whole life so going from the French private schools to um, downtown Canton Ohio was quite a little the shift. bit of a shift yeah yeah quite yeah. the shift and 
Yeah. It was cool for her because her and my little brother are actually only a month apart. And so they, Aww. yeah, they're like twins. It's so cute. cute. But they got to go to high school together for a year. It was so interesting, her experience, because she finished the Ohio like graduation exams, Ohio proficiency exams, and all of the graduation requirements for her diploma in one year after already gaining her um uh, baccalaureate degree abroad oh my God. and she had to like do all of that so she could apply for u.s university here and wow just what she went through with all of our help and having my whole family here like i couldn't imagine being a person who has zero and is just starting from scratch yeah because right? even just to watch her with all of our help i mean she used to sit for hours and translate every word of every textbook because she would her English she was still practicing it at that time and she would like you know she's so studious she's so brilliant and she spoke fluent like French Arabic English and she would sit there and like translate every little word to study and get it right and it was so amazing just how hard she worked and I'm so proud of her she just got into pharmacy school oh good for her yeah she's wow so as a teenager so she was doing that as a teenager on her own like she what other teenager do we know who dedicates their time like that i was too busy getting in fights yeah me too (laughs) that's why we became lawyers (laughs) yeah right it's true (laughs) i'm nodding destined yeah ellie was nodding oh my gosh that's so funny that's hilarious. I mean, just what she, like what we go through in our own families watching their, not only their immigration system status and their court hearings and all of those things, but also just like the cultural shift. I mean, yeah. it's really hard. It's so hard to come here from a non-English speaking yeah. country and to start a new life mm-hmm. in a whole new culture with an entirely new community of people. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's something that I don't think most Americans would be brave enough to even try. And the fact that people have to take these chances. I mean, that's just amazing. Yeah, a lot of people who go through it don't want to. No, it's not like they yeah, it's not like they woke up one day and said, oh, um, America is the best possible place like for me to go. And I want to abandon everything and leave everything I know. It's like. A lot of people deal with that not through choice. It's more along the lines of it's more along the lines of hey, my my country's entire economic system has completely crashed, and now there's war, or yep. and or, yeah, or I'm being targeted for some reason or, or many reasons, or a criminal government has stepped in and now they want to exploit me. Yeah, so true. And it's it's crazy. Mm-hmm. So, but a lot of our cases do have this immigration overlap. Some of them don't. Um, mm-hmm. I guess to switch topics a bit. Um, yeah. Another case we're working on is a, a black family who lives in the southern part of North Carolina, and their next door neighbors are KKK members. Oh, chill. Um, have literally dedicated their entire lives to just terrifying our client and his family. And it was interesting because I saw the client's story come up on my Twitter this weekend and was like, oh, well, that's at least he's getting some fame. I was like, okay, he's getting some like 
Twitter fame. That's cool. Yeah. But literally these people. So this family lives. They share a driveway with the people next door. And the people next door is the KKK family. And so the client and his family, they moved in because the whole it's across from a high school and they wanted their children to be closer to the school. Yeah. And so they moved into this house and their neighbors like started harassing them, calling them the N-word, saying really violent, you know, things. And they just ignored it. Eventually they put up a six foot privacy fence between themselves and the neighbor's house. Yeah. The neighbor planted a tree to hang a KKK sign above the privacy fence. And then built a platform to put a speaker that speaks into their yard and a platform that also has a KKK mannequin doll staring into the children's bedroom window. (gasps) Oh, this is like that's the thing of nightmares. This is like cartoon levels of villainy. Right. Like the effort they took to terrify children and to terrify just this nice family who lives next door. I mean, this, wow. this the client I'm talking, it's so funny because sometimes this is going to sound really bad, but sometimes you have clients that call you every five minutes and their problem is the biggest problem in the world. And to them it really is. But yeah. there's sometimes just not much we can do except for wait. And a lot of times yeah. clients who call every day, I have to be like, we're still waiting. Right. And I know that that gets people really frustrated, but that's just like, I don't have a choice. I have to wait for that document to come in or for that person to make yeah, a move yeah. or whatever. This client is the total opposite. I have to call him to just like be like, Check hey, in. I haven't heard from you in a few weeks. Like, are you safe? I hadn't heard from him wow. in a few weeks. He emailed me back like two days later and was like, hi, Netta, I'm so sorry. Thank you for checking in. I had a heart attack over the weekend. So I've just been in recovery. And I was like, oh my god i can't please don't apologize i oh. hope that you're okay holy shit um yeah. and he's a very young person he was like i but he's so stressed yeah i i firmly convinced that this is why he had a heart attack was because oh, it, of, uh, of course it has to be connected yeah and but yeah. he was like i'm sorry i've been in the hospital my apologies for not getting back to oh. you in one day and taking two days respond oh my god and like it it makes me even more so be like like want to advocate for him you know to be like no this is like like, not okay um and it's it's so horrific just this family they drive up and down so they share a driveway but the family has um, decorated their truck in confederate flags naturally and so they drive up and down the shared driveway with the Confederate flag truck often. And in one in a couple of circumstances now, the next door family has also um, drug, driven their truck at the family. So they actually hit my client's stepdad with their <gasps> car. And also, like, they'll just shoot their guns at them for fun. But because the shots land within the property line, yeah. it's not actually, like, consider- it's crazy like what the fuck how much this how much this family has gone in 2019 like the this family has endured years of kkk attacks by their next door neighbor and when they went to report it to law enforcement which they've done multiple times Mm -hmm. law enforcement has yet to like address it they even tried to push a claim 
at the magistrate's office and the magistrate told them that there wasn't enough for like a harassment or anything and it was so like alarming oh my god just the reaction from the local um judicial system or the, the local law enforcement system on just how how much they just have not re- responded like they just haven't responded it's not that they they've said something bad it's just they haven't reacted at all yeah i mean that's basically tacit <laughs> approval at this point yeah i mean so it's, true it's yeah and it's just them they, acquiescing to it's yeah. like oh it's just they're, they're just a bunch of good old boys ignore them so yeah, or like they're the exercising their freedom of speech, even though there's right? active harassment and even the physical harm of driving toward, or at least physical threat of driving at a person. So that's when they finally made the charge was when they hit the stepdad. And here's the so joke. That's what it took. His stepdad is a white man. Oh, okay. There you go. And that's what, I mean, it's so horrific that they did that because yeah. they always like, I, apparently they yell at his mom and stepdad and always call her the n-word and him like n-word lover and like they're really aggressive towards just oh every gosh. person of yeah. that family but yeah the fact that it, it took them hitting a white man mm-hmm. for law enforcement to react to the harassment that this black family has endured for years years and years and years now that apparently this has just been overlooked and it was so when he contacted me I was actually, it was a weekend and I was in, I happened to be in New York that weekend and I answered my cell phone. Normally I don't answer like calls I don't know. Yeah. And he apparently just like got our number from a referral and was like, I know wow. that I'm, and he was like, I know that I'm not Arab. Can I still ask for your help? And I was like, yeah, of course. What's up? And we talked for hours and wow. he told me this whole story and I was, my jaw was just on the floor the entire, I came for back sure. to DC the next day and immediately was like we need to have an office meeting this is crazy this gentleman called me yesterday and oh my god like my heart just bleeds for him yeah and i'm really glad he got your contact info yeah i am too he found like adc uh, just on the internet and he was just looking at civil rights groups that would help him and he reached out to us and i was I mean, I'm so grateful I'm that so he did. I'm so glad he thought too. Yeah, yeah. To I'm so grateful that he did and that now they're, you know, it's being addressed. Yeah. Because, like I said, it was, I mean, the pictures that he was sending me, you would have thought come came from like, like mm. a movie. Like, I just, I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't believe like what I was watching. <sighs> and it, but, and I mean, uh, in addition to just the absolute horror and hate there's an absurdity to it because yeah it's like how what what do these kkk members do during the day how are they surviving without working how are they spending all of their time building a platform and creating a fucking mannequin it's like how do they come up with this time like also like literally cartoon levels of villainy like this is (laughs) right it really right it really is yeah i don't mean to laugh but i always when i learned like the when i had like the list of everything in front of me i was like if i people put this much effort into like doing nice things we would like like, the amount of effort that they took into planting this one tree to post this kkk sign on 
I wish they would have just posted like planted like ten trees and left no signs up. Yeah, it would have been so beneficial. We can always use more trees in our world. (laughs) That would have been great. Instead, they like you're like, can you get out your aggression by planting a bunch of trees, please? Yeah, plant more trees and please stop posting like your signs on them. Yeah, but I didn't even know the KKK had an official sign. No, they just keep like making signs and putting KKK on it and posting them like around oh, the family my home. God. Wow. They even so spray painted it. Homemade signs. On, wow. Yeah, they spray painted it on the family's, like the KKK on the family's home. What the fuck? Yeah. I mean, it's terrifying. I couldn't imagine, like, it's terrifying what they've no, that's just hor- hearing. Horrific. Just hearing him on the phone, like, he has six kids, him and his wife. Mm-hmm. they've been married for years beautiful like his kids are all you know range of ages and mm-hmm. none of them feel safe going outside none of them they live across from the high school and they still won't walk to school by themselves mm-hmm. like his wife won't sit on her own porch because she's terrified of them coming outdoors they can't um, use the space that they're entitled to you to live in. Like this is their home. Own. That they own. This is their home. Uh, they can't use their home. Yeah. Because the people next door have taken all of these, like you said, cartoon level of absurdity steps yeah. to make sure that their lives are miserable. And the and local fun. community has just like let it slide. Yeah, and will we ever see those folks those kkk folks on a terrorist watch list or some shit never 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 i mean to even get them just like random charges was so hard right like to just (laughs) yeah right the cases that we've taken really uh we do a lot of immigration work for Mm -hmm. sure a lot of asylum work for sure but we work you know just in civil rights issues across the board and especially cases of discrimination cases like this which are just so egregious i mean and I was shocked when I first spoke to him on how much he struggled to find somebody to help him. I was like, this is absurd. And wow. like this whole situation is crazy. I was, like I said, I saw it on Twitter this weekend. So that was interesting. Yeah, <laughs> I'm t- glad I, there's exposure. I mean, yeah. I hope I hope that helps in some way. I think it will. I hope so. I hope so, but I... I I have found that social media can be either super helpful or super hurtful. And yeah, yeah. With something that's so egregious like this, I would hope that the rest of the public will cry out and say, this is wrong. Mm. Yeah. But knowing those clan assholes, they'll probably set up a GoFundMe. (laughs) Jesus. Valid. They might. (laughs) Oh my God. I know. Well, I better, I have to head out. Well, thank you so much for talking. Thank you. This was, it's really great to hear the spectrum of um, work that you all do. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So that's like the fun part of working for a a nonprofit pro bono. We do go by donation. Shout out. Everyone, everyone. Visit our website, adc.org. Everyone support them in whatever way you can. Yeah, we take cases across the country. We take cases from other places, people trying to enter the country. All right, anyone who can donate, please do. Or if you cannot, (laughs) at least share this with everyone you know. Yeah. yeah. Links will be provided on the website, which is thequeerarabs.com. Yeah, and we're also on 
social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at The Queer Arabs. You can reach out to us at thequeerarabs at gmail.com or you can write to Ahmed, the Arabic side, the queer Arabs in Arabic at gmail.com. And then Neda, how can people follow you on social media? What's the best way? So I mostly use Instagram. Everyone can follow me at Neda, N-E-D-A underscore Marie, M-A-R-I-E. Um, I'm the only one on Instagram, (laughs) but I post my art there, my food there, my activism there. Um, You'll see links to things I've published there and just generally work things. I'll post like if I'm at a congressional hearing, I try to get really good video footage of people's faces during certain comments and remarks. Amazing. (laughs) I love your Instagram. (laughs) Sometimes it can be really sassy. And sometimes it can be really artful, and sometimes it can be like... (laughs) Some of both. (laughs) Sometimes it can be across the board, but it's very me, so... I love it. Yeah, I I hope you enjoy. I have to ask, is there a video of you just totally fangirling over AOC? There's a picture. There's a picture. And you'll see my face beaming. Yes. Like. I don't know how you <laughs> dealt with standing next to her. That's I amazing. I sat in front of her, Ayanna Presley, and Rashida Tlaib. And Rashida Tlaib saw my necklace the oh. one I, from my grandmother. And she said, oh, my sister's name is Neda. <gasps> and I said, I was like, oh, my God. She's, it took me a second to be like, oh, my God, she's talking she's to me. She's talking directly <laughs> to you. Ah. I was like, what? Oh my god and i was like oh really i was like yeah my name is Nada too and she's like yeah it's like, it's like <laughs> and then i was like well while i'm up here like hi i'm Nada to all of you and i like introduced myself to aoc and ayana and rashida and it was so funny because i was like just i got nervous and started rambling which i do and i was like well i actually just feel really connected to all of you for so many reasons and i was like i i just moved here from new york aoc my girl i'm so proud of you ayana presley i know you were born in lincoln park even though you don't live there now but i lived in lincoln park for four years and like hey i feel amazing i just love you yeah and then rashida i was like my palestinian sister i am so proud to have an arab woman a palestinian woman a woman from the midwest a strong woman oh yeah I'm so proud to like have you as a representative of the Arab peoples and just to have an Arab mm-hmm. woman up here is just so amazing. And I, I just like talked to all of them. And then for the next eight hours, I sat in the front row in front of them and watched them grill Wilbur Ross, which just made my whole life like come yeah. together. I was like, wow, I'm everything, really here. <laughs> everything led to this moment. Yeah, it was one of the most significant days of me being in dc oh yeah uh yeah i think so (laughs) there really has not been much since that like that like got me that wild upset probably the next person i have not met yet and i'm dying to see to me is ilhan omar oh my god yeah i want to meet yeah i want to meet her so badly so she's like the the last person you probably will yeah it's it's coming yeah i'm hoping i'm like sending the vision out into the universe like yeah let her be my best friend. Oh my God. She well. is a fucking badass. <laughs> yeah. So. She's an entire separate episode. Oh, I'm just, oh, 
my heart goes to her. And so are we are we just gonna have an entire episode where we're just fangirl fangirling over her? I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. Yeah, I'm okay with it too. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. All right, bye. thank you all bye, so guys. much for listening. Mm-hmm.